Hello once again, your wonky and affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez here for The Chronicles Reconsidered, where we look back at previous mystery science theater experiments or Riff Tracks commentaries exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. This week we're looking back at one of the best Riff Tracks in recent memory, a feature-length commercial for both the Nintendo Entertainment System and Universal Studios Hollywood, 1989's The Wizard starring that boy from the Wonder Years and Jeff Bridges' brother. So go ahead, insert coin, start podcast. Our story begins in 1988, with two corporate entities who could stand to engage in a little synergy. Universal Studios was bracing for a Writers Guild of America strike, and desperate to get some scripts quickly written and placed into development. And Nintendo had their release schedule for the upcoming American release of Super Mario Bros. 3 delayed after being faced with a shortage of ROM chips, whatever those are. Universal reached out to Nintendo about possibly acquiring a license for a potential film revolving around the company's live video game competitions, and Nintendo, seeing the delay of Super Mario as an opportunity to promote their product in a movie, agreed to Universal's terms. The script was assigned to a writer, Dave Chisholm, who says he was given three weeks to write The Karate Kid only with video games. According to Universal executive Tom Pollock, it was meant to be a video game-centric Tommy, the rock opera from The Who about a deaf, dumb, and blind pinball wizard. But I'm not trying to split hairs here. Universal reaches out to Ken Topolsky, the producer of The Wonder Years, about to finish its second season, and he secures the participation of his star, Fred Savage. The studio accelerates the project's development, aiming to have it in theaters for Christmas 1989, with shooting to begin in June of that same year, which is an insane time crunch. And by trimming a two and a half hour first cut to the bone, they make that date. On December 15th, an indifferent world is introduced to The Wizard. Two tickets to California, please. It's $226. Well, we only have $27.30. What does that get us? No way. Corey's taking his brother Jimmy on a ride. These two boys already traveled more than 80 miles across the state. We've hired someone to find him. What's his problem? He's just giant. But Jimmy's got a secret. You got 50,000 on Double Dragon? That could make this the ride of their lives. Look at him. He's a wizard. He's headed for the video championship. <laughs> this guy? What is that? Power glove. Yeah, well, uh... Just keep your power gloves up front, right? With a touch of romance. I am not kissing a boy. And a ton of trouble. That's huge. We're too late. They'll get there any way they can. Jimmy, here we come. Now, what do you think you're doing to him? All his life, you've been telling him to do what you want him to do. How about once you ask him what he wants to do, huh? Now. Video Armageddon. It's going to take a lot of guts, a little magic, and the wizard, Fred Savage. The Wizard. The story of The Wizard is as simple and convoluted as can be. 
Fred Savage is Corey Woods, a boy dealing with the divorce of his parents following the drowning of his half-sister. He lives with his dad, played by Beau Bridges, and his older brother, played by Christian Slater, while his mute, ambiguously impaired half-brother Jimmy lives with their mother. Or is she just Jimmy's mother? I have no idea how the family situation actually works because the movie has no interest whatsoever in making itself cut and dry in this one department. Practically everywhere else? Sure, why not? Anyway, the mom sends Jimmy to live in an institution because she feels that he isn't processing his sister's death properly, and Corey essentially abducts his half-brother and sets off hitchhiking on the road towards Los Angeles, despite the fact that they don't know anyone there. They run into a girl named Haley, played by future Rilo Kiley frontwoman and one of my favorite musical artists of all time, Jenny Lewis a girl from a similarly broken family running scams on poor, unsuspecting dopes as she treks back to her trailer home in Reno. Haley is what they call an old soul, a wise-ass, completely guarded and full of herself, who knows all the ins and outs of life on the road, is quite good at gambling, and commands the loyalty of a legion of truckers. Together, she and Corey take note of Jimmy's savant-like skills playing video games and start using him to hustle kids at truck stops to make some pocket change and a couple bus tickets. Meanwhile, Jimmy's mom, and Corey's mom, who knows, hires a pathetic, pervy bounty hunter to bring her son home as Corey's dad and his older brother hit the road to find the kids first. Corey, Haley, and Jimmy make it to Hollywood and enlist Jimmy in a video game competition at Universal Studios, and Corey hopes that Jimmy's mom will take note of his skills and reconsider his institutionalization. The two things not really having anything to do with one another, and Haley hopes to use her share of a potential $50,000 to buy her dad a house. Now, I know inflation has made the housing market absurdly pricey, I frequently see real estate listings near my neighborhood asking for a million plus for dumpy-looking residences. But was there ever a time when someone could buy a decent house, any kind of decent house, for a third of a $50,000 prize? Anyway, the three concurrent storylines, the kids, the parents, the bounty hunter, all intersect at the video game competition. The bounty hunter chases the kids through the universal backlot, the parents chase the bounty hunter, Blah, blah, blah. Jimmy wins the competition, cheered on by the whole family. Now, if that sounds like a bunch of garbage, that's because it is. It's somehow both lightweight and up its own ass. Feel good, yet craven. Ground level, and utterly preposterous. It's not entirely artless, though. Todd Holland, the director, is one of the greats of the early days of peak TV. Having been the key visual influence on The Larry Sanders Show, the co-creator and principal director for Wonderfalls, and responsible for countless, tremendous episodes of the original Twin Peaks, 30 Rock, and Felicity. His director of photography, Robert Yeoman, went on to be Wes Anderson's cinematographer on every single one of Anderson's live-action films. And throwing all this at a movie is basically the definition of lipstick on a pig. No matter how pretty your pictures are, entire dramatic plot developments shamelessly hinge on watching kids play late 80s video games. Which brings us to the next portion of this reconsideration, the commercial aspects. In terms of Nintendo-related propaganda, at least in my eyes, it's hard to look back at old console games and see them as particularly alluring or exciting in a world of 
PS9s and Switch Swatches and Sega CDs. I'm not a gamer, in case you couldn't tell. I enjoy Super Mario. It's just rudimentary enough to be my speed, but I can't imagine, even in 1989, when I was three, getting excited at the prospect of seeing someone else play it on a giant screen. Did this movie sell dozens of Nintendo Power subscriptions? Or rack up phone bills to their tip line? Did anyone see this and actually think... I love the Power Glove. It's so bad. Every single kid character in the film bases their identity on Nintendo. They can't possibly think about anything else. If you were to cut them, and don't do that, they're children, wait until they're older, they would bleed arcade tokens. As we pointed out last week, kids are dumb, but they're not that dumb. However, there is an aspect to the feature-length commercial that appeals to me. As I pointed out at the start of this episode, Universal Pictures also took the opportunity to pimp shit that they actually owned. Namely, where all the magic happens, where you can ride the movies, Universal Studios Hollywood, where you should always ask for Babs. That's a reference for approximately six people, none of whom are listening. <sighs> I'm killing it. You probably remember in past episodes that I spent about five minutes talking about Back to the Future The Ride, Confrontation, and Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, respectively, if you didn't skip over them. So it goes without saying that I am a theme park enthusiast, and I have a soft spot for Universal Studios. The Hollywood Park was once a half-day affair, where you could show up at 9am, ride the aforementioned Back to the Future and the E.T. Adventure, survive Backdraft, ascend from the upper lot to the lower lot on ginormous escalators for like 20 minutes and have seen everything there is to see just in time for lunch at CityWalk. With the arrival of the Wizarding World of Transphobia, Jurassic Park River Adventure, and Transmorphers the Ride, it's only recently become a full-fledged park, but Hollywood has always had something that its clones at Orlando, Japan, and Singapore could never match. The Backlot Tour where, in the span of an hour, guests can traverse a century of cinematic history, mostly perfectly preserved, encounter Jaws, King Kong, and Cylons, part the Red Seas, see the Bates Motel, survive a flash flood and an earthquake, it's the fucking best. And in The Wizard, the characters engage in a chase scene across my beloved backlot, improbably jumping between moving trams, the operators of which would never tolerate such dangerous behavior, and running onto the soundstage housing the King Kong encounter, which burned down in 2008, the unprecedented massive Kong animatronic never to be rebuilt. They dive beneath the suspension bridge that the tram traverses, giving viewers a peek behind the curtain of how the entire attraction works. It also reveals that Kong was only built to his midsection, which I had always assumed, but I won't lie, was severely disappointed to conclusively learn. The extended scene couldn't possibly last more than 10 minutes, but if the entire movie were just a chase through the 1989 Universal Studios, I would be totally on board. Screw this video game stuff. Give me kids meeting Botanicus and flying on bikes, watching the Miami Vice stunt show, or witnessing the adventure that was The Adventures of Conan, a sword and sorcery spectacular. I guess I would just rather watch that VHS that they sold in the studio store detailing all the rides and shows. Plot schmott. Give me my childhood rehashed. It would still suck, but I would appreciate it. 
On a less amusing note, we wrap up this reconsideration with the issue that I always dread when the subject of the wizard comes up. And thankfully, it doesn't happen often. That of representation. As I have discussed occasionally on the podcast and this Patreon, I have struggled with mental illness all my life. I am on the autism spectrum. I have obsessive-compulsive and bipolar disorders. And the entertainment industry is notoriously shitty in the way it depicts any of these things, but especially autism. For a recent egregious example, see Sia's directorial debut, Music. Part of this shitty treatment is that since autism is on a spectrum, it manifests in different ways for different people, which lets Hollywood off the hook by perhaps a micron or two, but any further would excuse far too much. Author and activist Dr. Stephen Shore once said, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And that essentially sums up my feelings on the matter. It's why I went undiagnosed until I was in my late 20s. My tendency to self-isolate and demonstrate extremely poor social skills, like going quiet at inopportune times and being unable to initiate conversation, was seen as simply strange or frustrating. My parents had no idea what to do about it, and I don't blame them. The 1990s were not exactly flush with useful information on parenting an autistic child, much less what determined their autism. Just a few years before my more pronounced mental idiosyncrasies began to make themselves known, the movie Rain Man was released, starring Dustin Hoffman as an autistic savant. And while I believe that Hoffman acted with no malice in his portrayal and indeed attempted to craft a very human, nuanced performance, I don't think the world took it the right way. People saw the film in droves, heard the word autism, and thought, oh, that's what they're all like, right? When in fact only one autistic person in ten demonstrates savant skills. It informed the next decade or so of portrayals and probably set us all back a considerable amount, only rebounding about two decades later. To make things even worse, the accolades Hoffman received for his performance frequently made note of how quote-unquote brave he was to depict someone with autism, much in the same way that straight actors were considered brave for playing homosexual characters, as if sexual orientation is akin to having monster DNA. Although that at least was motivated by the fact that for most of the history of film, an actor actually being gay was tantamount to career suicide, and playing a gay person opened their real life up to scrutiny. But in fact, Dustin Hoffman did nothing truly brave. Bravery is being a firefighter, or storming Normandy. Dustin Hoffman just played someone who did not exist. But by framing it as bravery, it became that much easier to lump autistic people who did exist into an unfavorable category, a category to be pitied and kept at a distance. And that, in effect, is what fucked us. Lately, there have been some decent portrayals in film and television, although they are still frequently performed by neurotypical actors, which does absolutely nothing to help combat the stigma that we supposedly can't learn lines or deal with onset pressures, uninformed assumptions made without ever bothering to actually employ anyone on the spectrum. The Wizard is a strange case in that no one in the film ever says explicitly that the character of Jimmy is autistic. He's certainly nonverbal for a great deal of the picture, being able to only say mostly one word, California, and a couple of clipped lines of dialogue, and he demonstrates savant-level capabilities for playing video games. Capabilities that are exploited by his older half-brother in a way that mimics Rain Man, released exactly one year and one day earlier, but the film is purposefully vague on why. 
even the neurotypical actor playing Jimmy, Luke Edwards, takes a blank slate approach. He plays video games, stares into the middle distance, squints his eyes, rarely demonstrates an expression. Basically, and this is not to rag on him, he was a child and not in charge of his character, he makes every choice and no choice at all. He could be shell-shocked with post-traumatic stress in the aftermath of watching his sister drown in a river, but even if that is the case, it would only explain perhaps his muteness and inability to engage with others. The rest is completely inconsistent, but because the amount of information parsed out over the course of an hour and 40-minute runtime is so scanty, we never get to actually understand his character, and it asks the audience to fill in the blanks. Considering when it was made and where we were culturally in 1989, that's a little distressing, especially in the wake of Rain Man. The audience is clearly saying, Oh, he's a weirdo? Must be one of them autistics I heard about at the Oscars. So brave. I can't imagine that it was kept vague so as to avoid offending special interest groups. This is an exploitation film at its core in more ways than one. Perhaps it was done in order to have it both ways. If people found it to be a sensitive portrayal, then they can say, why yes, we felt a real responsibility to the autistic community. And if they found it wrong, they can say, well, technically, we never said he was autistic, which feels gross. Like, it's not enough that you've shanghaied parents into buying a ticket for a feature-length Nintendo commercial. You have to wring bucks from melodramatic portrayals of indeterminate mental illness? Ugh. Produced for $6 million, The Wizard grossed a little over $14 million. And depending on how much Universal invested in the marketing, either basically made its money back or made a small profit before factoring home video into the equation. The critical reception was not too favorable, though. Absolutely no one was fooled as to the film's true intentions, probably because it was so piss-poor at hiding them. It essentially dropped into the ether almost immediately. It hung around for a couple minutes by popping up on a couple year-end worst movies list, only to slowly develop a cult audience over the following decade. Especially as gamer culture took off and dovetailed with the increasing proliferation of the internet, there was a certain vocal subset of, Remember that time they made a movie to promote Super Mario 3? That shit was so random, dog. Or whatever the fuck they said, I don't care. And that incredulity over a weird moment in time began to solidify into genuine fondness and nostalgia, with more than a few think pieces in the last half decade dedicated to communicating the idea that this film is actually underrated, despite the fact that it is objectively terrible. That's the thing about cult movies, which we touched upon a while back in the bonus chronicles for Killdozer. There, there really is no rhyme or reason to any of this stuff. I guess I understand missing the rudimentary days of 8-bit and NES, but liking a movie because those things appear in it is like saying that Jerry Maguire is good because there's a scene where he goes to Kinko's and you really like fax machines. I also just profess to be oddly fascinated with the Universal Studios portion of the film, so I suppose I sound like a hypocrite, but oh well, Seslevi or whatever. It is on that note that we conclude this episode of The Chronicles Reconsidered. Thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Next week on the free podcast, we start the final chapter of our history and legacy of Mystery Science Theater, all about the 2017 Netflix two-season revival of the series. From Kickstarter controversies to live tours, we're covering it all. 
Of course, you already have access to next week's episode here on the Patreon feed, but you knew that. Next Friday, March 26th, we're diving into Samurai Cop director Amir Sherbin's often baffling masterpieces, Hollywood Cop and Killing American Style, plus a movie he had nothing to do with because he was totally dead, Samurai Cop 2 Deadly Vengeance, starring Joe Estevez and Tommy Wiseau. It's, uh, really something. Yep, something. That's it. Until then, take care, and thank you for being a subscriber.